Hello, how are you? Welcome to episode number 218 of the Apple Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Head. Today's podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get affordable online counseling anytime, anywhere. You can talk with a licensed professional right now, and you can uh, get helped and therapied up in this time of dark winter depression. I should put echo in there. Dark winter depression. And you can you can talk with a licensed therapist um right now go to betterhelp.com slash and you can uh, start with uh with a free seven-day trial by entering the code word apologue okay thanks to everybody for shopping on amazon you too can support the show by going to apologue.ca slash amazon or apologue.ca slash us amazon you can you can uh, help the show out by shopping and uh, bookmarking the links uh, or those URLs. Someone asked me, what's a URL? I'm like, never mind. Uh, you can do the old-fashioned way, too, by going to applock.ca and click on those banners located on the right side. like to thank everybody who helped me out on Patreon. You, too, can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with my hosting and gas fees, and you can cancel anytime. Um, thanks for everybody on iTunes. You can just follow the show on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash pod. Follow me on Twitter at simonhead666. Today on the show is a dear old friend, Mr. Gentleman, Jim Norton. Jim Norton and I, uh, we met each other in the early 90s where he came up as a tour manager for a band called Down By Law. He also... Uh, played in a band called Crucial Youth. He also played in the band that I played in for a little while called Trigger Happy. He was the bass player. And then he was uh, working for bands like SNFU, Henry Rollins, all sorts of people. And he's a very good dude. And uh, I'd like you all to welcome one of my good friends from New Jersey, Mr. Gentleman Jim Norton on the Outlaw Podcast. Gentleman Jim Norton. Do the people still call you Gentleman Jim Norton? Is it just the old guys? Like- so, no, 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 no. Some people definitely do know me as Gentleman Jim Norton. <laughs> How did you get that name? Just being a well, good guy. I no, I well, it was kind of reverse. I uh, I was playing in a band, and I gave myself that punk rock name of Gentleman Jim, and then I realized very quickly that oh no, I've sort of painted myself into a corner. <laughs> Uh, where now I have to actually live up to the name. And uh, I almost immediately set about failing to live up to the name. <laughs> Is this Crucial so, Youth? No, I, Is this your first? Like- this was, yes, this was Crucial Youth. It was a band that I was in in New Jersey in the 1980s. Um, it was a parody of straight edge bands i don't think i was supposed to say that i don't think the secret w- that might be the first public Whoa. utterance what of scoop. breaking the secret there <laughs> but uh we were the the straightest band in the world really the uh i love your screen for change sh- uh um story because you've told the story but it actually didn't make the light of day 
because not a lot of people know this, but the very first episode of the podcast I did is was you, and it actually was called a different name, and we told some stories, and then it never came out. So could you please grace us with the Scream for Change? Sure, sure. So uh, being a straight-edge, hardcore punk rock band in the 1980s, we uh, uh, had occasion to play with uh, straight edge stalwart California band Uniform Choice at a club in Connecticut, a legendary club for sort of youth crew and straight edge bands, a lot of most hardcore and punk stuff as well. But it was a place called the Anthrax. Uh, and we played this show, and our guitar player at the time. Uh, guy named uh, who went by the stage name of Maynard Krebs had moved out to Long Beach, California, to work for a uh, an aerospace company. And he told us that when we were uh, he he came back and we played this show sort of on a vacation or something of his, and he told us that the big joke out in California was. Uniform Choice had a song and an album called Screaming for Change. And so when they played the song Screaming for Change out in California, uh, people would toss coins at them. And, you know, this is, of course, pre-internet. So the 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 idea was they'll never be expecting this in Connecticut because <laughs> nobody here knows what's about to happen. You know, yeah. no one here knows about this joke from California. So... Um, the, you know, the idea was that they were going to play Screaming for Change and we would play, we would throw coins at them and they would be caught off guard because it wasn't their usual lunkhead friends who were doing it. It was a bunch of strangers. So the day of the show comes and we all know that we're going to do this Screaming for Change thing. And everybody in the band were packing up in New Jersey. It's about two hours away, hour and a half away from uh, the gig. And everybody has sort of like a little, like a little glass, like a drinking glass with uh, maybe half full of, of pennies and a couple of dimes or something like that. And I roll in because <clears throat> as I, as I used to say quite a bit, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <laughs> um, I roll in with this giant, oversized family-sized planters peanut jar like the kind of thing that you would buy and they would just last the whole summer like it would just it's just this giant thing is probably you know a two pound jar like a kilo jar <laughs> of peanuts and uh and it's filled and it is filled with dimes nickels quarters like it, there's some serious, serious money in this, in this jar. And, uh, I show up and everyone kind of like looks at it and sort of <laughs> laughs and goes, Oh, whatever. Okay, fine. And we go on up to Connecticut and we play our set and, uh, uh, then we finish and uniform choice goes up and they're getting ready to play. And there were two brothers that were in crucial youth. One of them was, Maynard Krebs, the guitar player. The other one was went by the name of Melvin Berkeley, 
uh, he was the drummer. And the two of them, uh, their dad was Indian. Uh, he's from the subcontinent. And their mom was American, but they looked, the two of them, you know, they, they look very Indian. So we're at this gig and uh, it's in Connecticut and it's like 1988 and the guitar player uh, Maynard Krebs is standing there and a guy comes up to him and goes, Hey, you know, aren't you so-and-so like uses his real first name. And, uh, and he looks and that guy is Ian Mackay of <laughs> minor threat and Fugazi. Uh, and the guitar player, our guitar player Maynard gets very, uh, flattered by the fact that Ian Mackay recognized him and he was, you know, how do you, how do you know? Oh, well, you, you went to Princeton university, you went to Princeton and, uh, you had that radio show and we played a show there and oh, you wow. came over and, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, can you remember that? And he's like, you know, there aren't that many Indian guys who are into hardcore, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I remember you, you know? And, uh, so they're standing there talking and somehow, uh, Maynard, the guitar player gets word back to, uh, probably through his younger brother, the drummer, uh, that the plan to throw coins at Uniform Choice has been canceled. Because <laughs> now he's got cred. Because he, <laughs> now he's got cred, so he doesn't want to look like a goofball. <laughs> yeah. And so they come up to me, and, and I'm standing at the back of the room like a Ready? weasel with this, with this you know, giant jar of coins. And uh, like, oh, yeah, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And I was like, why not? Oh, well, he says, you know, you know, whatever. He doesn't want to do it. And I saw, I, I saw exactly. And I was like, yeah, they said, oh, he's talking to, talking to Ian Mackay. I said, I don't care if he's talking to Ian Mackay. <laughs> like, come on. Like, the joke is the joke. You know, <laughs> you do it because you were going to do it. Um, and, you know, there's just sort of like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. They walk away and I'm standing there sort of dejected at the back of the room, probably about, I'm going to say maybe 30 or 40 feet from the stage, 30 feet, 30 feet from the stage. And, uh, and I'm just standing there and I'm just sort of deflated thinking like, you know, I, this is dumb. Like we're, you know, I can't believe we're not going to do this because he's starstruck. <laughs> and then the singer and drummer are right by the front of the stage. And uh, the song starts, they start the song screaming for change, which if I remember correctly, it starts with sort of a, a bass line. And I see up by the front of the stage, there is Melvin, the drummer, and Joe Crucial, the singer, and they are tossing coins underhand at the band. And they're sort of gently tossing these coins, which I see as a as an absolute green light. <laughs> Except not necessarily being the most subtle person in the room. Rather than gently underhand tossing these coins from, you know, three, four feet in front of the stage... I 
am standing at the back of the room whipping hands full of coins overhand at the band and spraying the entire room with nickels dimes quarters pennies whatever um and just handful after handful just really probably threw about a good ten dollars worth of coins at them and uh and then they the song stops and the singer says you know of course they're once they realize that they're getting they've got lights in their face (laughs) they have lights in their eyes and coins coming at them (laughs) from an undetermined distance (laughs) at high velocity they're sort of shielding themselves and turning around and um and the song ends and so i stopped throwing coins at them and uh the singer has this great line where he just sort of looks out into the crowd and says you know fun is fun but nickels hurt (laughs) and uh and across the room ian mckay turns to our guitar player and says hey isn't that your bass player (laughs) (laughs) and maynard the guitar player says yeah he goes that guy's an idiot (laughs) so which i mean you know years later he wasn't wrong (laughs) but uh (laughs) but uh so what happened was we had to drive from connecticut down to queens new york which was like an hour uh to drop off the guitar player's girlfriend at her parents house Hmm. and then and and not a word was spoken Ooh. for that entire ride. It was just not a word. He was just nothing. <laughs> and we're in Queens, New York, and we she gets out of the car and she goes in and she closes the door behind her. And immediately he just lays into me and continues to scream at me full voice from from Flushing, Queens, New York <laughs> to Holmdel, New Jersey, about an hour and 20 minute drive. Wow. Because, of course, you know, going through the city is longer than just going up to Connecticut by itself. <laughs> so it's actually a long it was a full hour, hour and 20 minutes of him just yelling about what an idiot I was and how, how much I embarrassed him and all of this stuff. And I'm just sort of sitting there going, dude, you know, come on. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Chill out. (laughs) Yeah. It happened. What are you going to do? You know? Um, So yeah, that's the, that is the screaming for change story. There was uh, when crucial youth made our album, the first test pressing, uh, we had them put the quote, fun is fun, but nickels hurt, <laughs> like carved into the into the, the out groove by the, oh, wow. uh, after the last song. Um, but there was actually a problem with the first test pressing and we, they had to change something and they never went back and put that back in. But somewhere out there, mm-hmm. there are, there are, you know, whatever, a dozen test pressings or five test pressings of yeah. the album that say fun is fun, but nickels hurt on them. <laughs> you, <laughs> because you, 
you've always been in punk rock, right? Like when when you first started playing, in, that was your first band, right? Like was that your first? I played in I played in one band before it. Yeah. Um, I played in a band before it uh, that was like a local or, or I what a, a local band that didn't really get more than you know local or or statewide recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was that was essent- that was the the only band that I was in that had like any real notoriety, mm-hmm. and and even that is that is really <laughs> overstating it. And I want to be clear to anybody who's listening um, that uh, if if it sounds like I'm overstating the cultural importance of Crucial Youth or myself, uh, <laughs> I assure you. It is strictly for entertainment purposes, <laughs> and I do not take that to heart. <laughs> did you uh, did you tour outside of the state much? Like when when because when were you touring all over North like uh, America? Like how, when you guys toured? We did. Uh, we toured on a demo tape yeah. because you could do that in 1986. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we toured on a demo tape uh, to the Greater Ohio Valley and back mm-hmm. uh that was like two weeks and uh other than that we did uh we did like a month-long tour of europe and that was sort of our big swan song mm-hmm. but no not really i mean we played a we played a show in buffalo we played a show in dc we played a couple of shows in new york and a couple in connecticut but it was crucial youth was great because it was minimal minimal work for maximum payoff <laughs> yeah um and actually even maximum payoff might again be overstating it minimal work for pretty worthwhile payoff how about that <laughs> you know yeah yeah but europe that was back when there was like border crossings and different money yes. and everything so that might have been because i did it in the early 2000s when it was just dumb easy you you know you'd drive from one country to the other and the road would widen a little bit and you'd see where those turnstiles used to be like where you'd stop and yep. present papers and it was like you know it's but i've heard stories like band like sons of ishmael when they tour in like spain and stuff and have their lives threatened and you know or they'd be traveling all over and be dealing with certain things that we didn't have to deal with yeah i mean we did it it was really almost a uh we knew at the time we toured in the summer of 1989 mm-hmm. and it was a tour because the singer had graduated from, I guess, grad school. Um, he was a few years older than I was. And uh, he had... Oh, interesting thing about Crucial Youth is um, I was far and away the stupidest person in the band. <laughs> Like le- least intelligent, uh, everybody else in the band, uh, highly academically accomplished people, and I was the idiot who showed up with two pounds full of, you know, yeah. a two pound jar full of nickels to throw at somebody from across the room. <laughs> um, I was, I guess, I was the band's version of Sid Vicious, you know, just, <laughs> yeah. uh, but so. The uh, uh, singer had graduated grad school at Cornell University. Um, 
he finished a two-year program in one year. Oh, uh, yes. Like that's that's what I'm what I'm getting at is, you know, the the guy who was talking to Ian Mackay was uh had an aerospace engineering degree from Princeton University. Um I worked at a pizza place. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah. um but uh uh so yeah, we knew that the that the Europe tour was sort of it was uh it was a last hurrah and it was a you know, we're gonna do this and then the singer's gonna go get a real job in the real world where he makes real money and does real things. Right. Um which was great. Mm. And and it afforded us, you know, the luxury of saying, you know, we don't want to play every day. We want days off. They want to go. Um, the rest of the band went and climbed the Matterhorn in Switzerland. And I hung out in Berlin at a squat. And it was like, you know, I was 20 years old. It was great. Yeah. You know, um, so uh, yeah, that's the, the Europe tour. It was pretty cushy for us. I really have to be honest. And the guy we lucked out in that two of the guys, uh, we only played three countries. We played the UK. We played, uh, uh, excuse me. We played England. Mm -hmm. We played England. We played, uh, Germany and we played the Netherlands and that's it. Mm -hmm. So they were all pretty well established, uh, well toured. They had good, good sort of, um, connections there and things like that. And the, the Dutch uh, tour manager and booking agent and the German tour manager and booking agent, to the best of my knowledge, well, I know that the German one, uh, he is uh, Dave Pollock from Destiny Tour Booking. He's yeah, still- Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met him. I met him. That's yeah. so crazy. I met him on a 10-foot pole tour. Yes. He still books, uh, you know, he's booking- no effects. Yeah. He does sort of, sort of bigger punk stuff. He booked, I don't know if he still books bad religion or not, which, you know, but he booked them throughout the nineties. And I want to say early two thousands in Germany when they were, they were just huge. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a real, he's someone who's real. Yeah. Um, and we were, we weren't his first band, but we were among his first tours. Yeah. So, uh, there's always sort of this, you know, this mutual affection between us of like, you know, you were there when, um, yeah. 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 I've met some, some neat people over there that like, it's a whole different, you, you sort of came in the, just at the start of the sweet spot. And then I came in at the very end of the not so sweet spot because, Oh, seriously. Yeah. Because when people would go see shows, they would spend their life savings on merchandise. Like they would like, Right. You know what I mean? Like it'd be like yeah. everything on the merch table. Like the guy who put a record out in Germany, he would tell me stories like from the early nineties forward and saying he would take his whole paycheck to a no effects concert and buy everything on the merch table. Cause he didn't know if he would be able to, you know what I mean? Like see that band again. And it was right. sort of very endearing because as you know, North America doesn't have that type of, thirst for american culture or just north american culture in general like we we get it like we got it but back then it seemed to be like a we need to absorb this because 
and I did, I can't really figure out why at this point because, you know. No, I, I, I actually, I, working in a club now where uh, younger bands play, mm-hmm. like that still happens. It's not a function. I don't think it's a function of, of location. I don't think it's a function of culture. I think it's a function of age and novelty. So, you know, a big thing, uh, you know, I now work at a venue uh, in New Jersey mm-hmm. and we'll get these sort of younger pop punk bands or pop indie bands or, um, you know, even like younger metal bands yeah. where, you know, there will be there will be uh, these pre-show VIP meet and greets. And so it's $25 to get into the show, you know, $25 for a, for a general admission ticket or for $75, you get the VIP early bird merch meet and greet, whatever. Mm -hmm. And what it really comes down to is 90 minutes before doors, they let these people in, they get first crack at the merch table They've sp- they've paid fifty extra dollars just to be there. Right. They go to the, straight to the merch table. They spend another fifty dollars. Then they go and they get their picture taken with the band, and then the band will whatever play some play some songs or talk to them or like do a Q and A or whatever it is. But it's like you know there is still that that level of super fan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not you know it's going to be for something that appeals to people who are younger, who are, you know, really jazzed on something as opposed to it being everybody, you know, yes, the no effects had probably some amazing tour or some amazing merch numbers, but then, you know, how many no effects shirts can people buy year after year after year? Like, you know, they still do. Trust me. They still do very well. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, uh, it's not going to be that same crazy dollar per head where you go, holy smokes, you know, there were, there were 500 people here and we took in, you know, $60 a head or something crazy like that, where you just go, you know, no, you're, you're not going to get that every year. That's got to burn itself out eventually, but you can still do $15 a head or something like that. And that's a great number. Pretty good. Yeah. I, yeah, when you say, I mean, it's an interesting thing to say that young bands, because they have the power of social networking and things to, to be able to promote themselves in that fact saying, first of all, we're very important and you're going to love us. And here's the way to do that. It just seemed maybe 30 years ago that obviously that didn't exist and everything was word of mouth. And I think the, that's maybe that's why I'm so surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised that stuff like that happens everywhere else today it's just back then when a band from north america like a band i played in people i'm in my 30s i'm in a band playing clubs and people appreciate it and i couldn't get arrested in canada because it seemed like europeans have a different sense of i don't know oh yeah well yeah no there is it's but also you know europe is germany especially or 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 germany scandinavia Mm. Um, you know, metal is still huge there. Yeah. You know, they still do 
they still do really big numbers with metal where it's like here, well, you know, you got your big four and then it sort of falls off pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're, though that part of it, yes, is cultural mm -hmm. in terms of tastes, um, in terms of what they're, what they're willing to give a chance to, um, you know, it's funny. There was, I remember being on tour with, um, oh, look out for the falling name drop Canada. Here it comes. <laughs> Here it comes. Uh, I remember laughing about, uh, a thing in the, NME while being on tour in the UK with Doughboys mm. in the early 90s. Um, or actually probably would have been around 94. Mm -hmm. um, and it was this little snippet about unknown band from whatever town uh, called Bush. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, basically the article was you know, there's this band from this town called Bush, and they're unknown here, but in the U.S., they're bigger than Oasis. <laughs> and it was like, it's like because Oasis... It's like the hard yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, yeah, they're bigger than Oasis, because at that point, no one here cared about Oasis. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I remember, uh, you know, whatever. It's just, it's like, just no one cared. It was, it was, um, and so like, we we're laughing about it, just going like, Oh, I guess Bush isn't that big here, but they had already had a one or two hits in the U S and I imagine also in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just like, yeah, they're, they're not, the radio isn't hitting the same way in those two places where, you know, yeah. A couple of years later, Oasis was pro was bigger than Bush. Yeah. But it took, you know, just a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that stuff, that stuff definitely happens. And I've experienced that on tour as well, where it's like, you know, people going crazy for a band from the U.S. that, yeah, in the U.S. they just don't care about. Yeah. Well, the U.K. was a funky country for even like a band, the weaker bands. I mean, they... They they were in Germany playing huge venues in front of lots of adoring fans, but to go to England, they took them three records to actually like make any impact. So that kind of tells you. And actually, I I witnessed it a few. Like I went there twice with two different bands with my band, and I'm like, I can't wait to get back to France. And I never thought I'd say that. You know what I mean? Like I right. can't wait to leave. I can't wait to leave the country I was born in. To go play right. places where they'd give you five pounds in a in a in as a in in like a six pack of beer for all the whole band, you know, and in Germany we're like we just love you, we want you to come, we like we like people, we have there's a whole other structural system in place there that is too long to explain, but the like thing about Germany is that they really did embrace culture and they embraced culture from everywhere, and the, I think they the UK was sort of like well. Kind of like a little, I don't know, maybe they thought they were just too big for their britches and they get to choose who's successful or not. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the UK has that, the UK has that, um, that music press and it was really bad in the eighties and nineties, mm -hmm. that music press thing that was all about like set them up and knock them down, mm -hmm. um, where it was, you know, it would be if if they decided that you were the one 
uh, you were the one for two or three years. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, whatever, you know, did Simon from, you know, whatever band, like, was he seen, you know, snogging with somebody who was not his <laughs> girlfriend, you know, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, yeah. whatever philandering drunken simon yeah you know and it's like jesus they, how do they know me so well <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um so yeah that 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 was always kind of their thing was just selling selling the next issue of the paper mm-hmm. but yeah i mean they you know fair is fair they did they did produce like you know it's pretty good the beatles and the stones yeah. and the who and yeah. you know they 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 did all right they yeah they they did their part for rock music but they but, also um, they also brought out one direction and let's let's call it what it is <laughs> you you know what one direction is i know what one direction yeah. is oh, i'm sure. sorry yeah i, I, yeah. I, call I mean that, out there. yeah no 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 i know what one direction is but the um <laughs> yeah they did they did whatever I, I'm too old to I'm too old to get grumpy about bands like that anymore. Two out of now three I, ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, I always yeah I'm definitely at the like ah who are they hurting stage of my life. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's true. You know, like ah, it's funny you say that because the the idea that you know judging music for your your personal taste you find as you get older you kind of like like you're saying like I don't doesn't bother me. It's nothing is affecting me personally. Like for instance. Right. Would you would you affect like could you effectively say something when say you were twenty that ah, I can handle the Backstreet Boys you know <laughs> you know what I mean like right they're stuck right. on the radio I, you know I, I guess I could go through that song you know no 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 it was it was it was live or die I mean it really really was and you know the other funny thing is when you get older and you start liking the things that you made a point of disliking when you were younger like you know. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like you're listening to like the Smiths, and you're like, you know, this is pretty good. I was listening to the Smiths too, like this morning. It was on because we've got a record player upstairs, and like the Smiths were like, "Yep, I can handle that." (laughs) Sure. Yeah. No. For years, I oh, oh, not the Smiths. Any the Smiths, the Smiths. And you listen to, and you're like, all right, okay, these guys kind of had it figured out, (laughs) you know. Maybe I was. Maybe those those hundred million people over there were right, and I was the one who was wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah. Something about something about about uh, uh, the effects of age on testosterone level, or something like uh, that. No, I think you know. That's the whole thing. I mean, I'm I'm kind of I'm a few episodes into this show, and there's always a common thread about like your your ethics as a as a mid twenties or early twenties year old there's still parts of it in you and there's still mm-hmm. parts of that that makes you drive the way you drive and in 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 speak to people when you're spoken to a certain way um the reaction that you give based on the reaction you get but there's also the older person in you that goes yeah i know the trap i know what's happening here you know what i mean like right. you know so there's always like cuz being 20 and being confrontational that's sort of like it goes hand in hand in a way, right? You know, it, it, it being a punk rock band and stuff, it's like it it does feed itself, right? So when you get a little older, you start realizing that well, that's the good part. That's the part I like being. That's the part I can appreciate, and that's the part. And then you can just throw away the older parts of yourself and say, "Oh, okay, I'm uh, I'm not that person anymore. I'm thirty years older than that." Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I think about, you know, other things I'm still just as angry and confrontational and just as likely to, uh, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, two incidents in the past 14 months where, you know, I really let loose a, uh, uh, a tapestry of four letter words <laughs> on one of my coworkers, uh, which we, we touched on a little bit before we recorded, but yeah. you know, yeah, no, there, there are still people out there who think that, um, who have a well, well founded opinion of me that I'm an absolute lunatic. <laughs> um, you know, so I'm, I'm really, I guess I'm really just talking about the Smiths. You know? <laughs> it's not a whole worldview. Yeah. It's just that I like Morrissey more than I used oh, to. Oh yeah, no, I agree with you. <laughs> oh, but by the way, by the way, I found a thing online, uh, and this is just like a Morrissey thing for for people who are even slightly nerdy about music. I found a thing online where a guy explained Morrissey's vocal lines like his vocal melodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is really cool. And he just said like the thing that Morrissey does is he pl- he sings most of his songs uh he sort of stays right around the major third of the root note of the chord progression, the root chord. Mm-hmm. So he did this thing where he played like an A D E, you know, just a typical one, four, five, Johnny B. Good kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he sang, he sang the C sharp. And if you do that, it's kind of crazy, but it's like that's exactly what Morrissey does. He literally unlocked Morrissey's entire like oh, vocal cool. melody thing. That's and then he just sort of, you know, goes off of that yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But um when you when you you know if you look it up like Morrissey vocal line whatever Morrissey vocal melody, um, when you yeah when you see it and you hear him do it you just go oh my gosh that is every Smith song yeah yeah you know, it's really cool. There's uh I want this story to be true but someone told me the story that Morrissey got picked up at a hotel to go to a venue to play and he came and he noticed that they'd spelt his name wrong in the on the marquee, so he said mm-hmm. keep going. <laughs> don't stop didn't that's even, i mean i don't yeah. even know if that's true story i love it if it is because it's like you spelled my name wrong like why am i playing here yeah i i might be with him on that one i know right yeah <laughs> i thought it was funny like, because it's like well the contract says that's my name that's obviously that's a different morrissey playing maybe i don't need yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i would never never in my life will you find me paying money to buy a ticket to go to a Morrissey show because his, you know, perform versus cancel ratio is way, way low for my, <laughs> uh, for my tastes. But, um, yeah, I, I think that it, unless you're maybe the only way I could see that being excusable is if it was in a country that does not use the same alphabet. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. You know, like if, if you're in if you're in Shanghai and they misspell Morrissey, you go, eh, you know, they try. whatever. It's funny. It's yeah. good for a Twitter update or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it, but you know, yeah, if he's in Boston and <laughs> yeah. uh, 
and they misspelled Morrissey on the marquee and no one caught it. Yeah. You know, that's embarrassing. which actually that segues very nicely into um, a rant that I would like to get out there as often as possible. <laughs> um, are you familiar with the, uh, the lore of the Van Halen, no green M&Ms? I am. I know. And I know what it's for. What is it for? It's for if you take the brown M&Ms out of the bowl, that means that's everything has been covered on the rider. Right. So have we already done this? Did no, we do no. this like four years ago? No, I don't okay. remember. I don't remember. Okay. So so for those who don't know what we're talking about, the, the, the 80s uh, pop metal band Van Halen famously had a tour contract rider where they stipulated that in in their uh, back room or, or their dressing room uh, catering that there were to be M&Ms, but it's, is it no brown m and I thought it was no brown, but... Yeah. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. That's fine. It yeah. works. No brown M&Ms. So the idea was that wherever they were playing, uh, you know, they were expecting that the people who were setting up the food and drink, et cetera, in the backstage area would go through and pick out from a, you know, a bag of a a large bag of M&Ms, pour them into a bowl and then one by one, pull out all of the brown M&Ms. And that was, you know, they were sort of, uh, uh, made fun of and teased and, and, you know, sort of mocked for this for years. So about eight or nine years ago, sometime around 2010, David Lee Roth, the original singer of Van Halen, does an interview and he says, well, now, you know, people talk about the no brown M&Ms thing, but, you know, you got to understand, you know, the reason we did that was because you want to make sure that you know, they, they read through everything very carefully because we're bringing in, you know, heavy electrical equipment and we're, we're bringing in staging and we're bringing in, you know, all of this stuff. And if everything's not perfect, then people can get hurt and people could get killed. And, you know, these lighting trusses that we're putting up in the air and, you know, thousands of watts and running through them, however many amps running through them, you know, it's very important that all of this stuff to be, you know, safe is 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 paid attention to and the only way that we can make sure that this is paid attention to is to put this stupid line in our you know our backstage snacks section that says pick out the brown m&ms and that way if we get backstage and we see brown m&ms we know oh okay these guys aren't on the ball we need to check every bolt and electrical connection and everything because clearly you know, these people don't haven't read the contract, mm-hmm. you know, closely enough. Okay. So David Lee Roth, 30 years or so after this thing was written, explains it and, and sort of justifies it. And a shockingly large number of people who read this explanation that the 55-year-old David Lee Roth gave for 25-year-old David Lee Roth's silly frivolities (laughs) believed him. 
um, in the intervening years, it has come out that David Lee Roth, and this is actually very cool, and I was never a Van Halen fan, mm-hmm. but um, David Lee Roth worked as a New York City EMT. After he left Van Halen. I just heard about that today, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, as Diamond Dave, who had, he left Van Halen, then he had a solo career, yeah. and then his solo career sort of petered out. And at some point, he decided he wanted to be an EMT in New York, which I have no desire to be an EMT in New mm-hmm. York or anywhere. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I'm also not someone who uh, is, you know, I, I am not given to, uh, what I consider to be, uh, how would I refer to it? Gratuitous praise <laughs> heaped on our first responders by virtue of the fact that they are our first responders. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are people who are good and bad at their job in every single field. You know, the fact that you are a fireman or a policeman or an EMT, great. We need them. I am, you know, I do believe that we need police. I don't believe we need to salute the police every time they walk by you know i'm crazy like that (laughs) so um the yeah so david lee roth former like rock star going and becoming an emt is one of the coolest things i've ever heard yeah like really is one of the coolest things where you just go and and apparently the people who he worked with he did not tell them who he was. Could you he imagine like being you being in a car yeah. crash and it's like, hey buddy, get up there! Wow, <laughs> 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 yeah, he two high kicks and you're in the back of the ambulance like, woo! Am I dead? We're gonna get you to the <laughs> we're gonna get you to the hospital as fast as Bozy to Bozy to but um think left of you. Hey man, I think my <laughs> clock is slow, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel tardy. <laughs> so uh look, I said I'm not a Van Halen fan. I, I didn't live under a man. rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh anyway, so the uh uh so David Lee Roth becomes an EMT. Sees some real shit, I'm sure. Yeah. By the way, do you bleep stuff out or no? No, you you swear away. Okay, yeah, go okay. for it. Go All right. right. Um, but uh, sees some really, you know, I'm sure he saw some pretty rough stuff. Yeah. Um, because New York City EMTs do, and uh, you know, maybe that made him rethink the brown M M&M and M thing a little bit. Maybe it made him question some of his earlier. F- as I say, frivolities. Um, <laughs> yeah. But this explanation, which to my knowledge, he has never come back and said, well, of course, everything I said about that explanation and it having about having to do with safety mm. is completely ridiculous. Um, you work at a, at a theater and you mm-hmm. have worked in venues and you have toured the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work in a venue and I have toured the world and I have played in bands. Um, when was the last time you saw the people who set the lighting trusses up <laughs> be the same people who poured the M&Ms into a bowl? Yeah. It's you- not It's not the same people. No. Those people don't even see the same. They don't see this each other. 
the pages of the contract yeah. they don't even see each other's pages there's two riders there's a technical rider and there's a hospitality rider even if it's even yeah. if it's all lumped together yeah you know you're judging you're judging the work of uh you're judging the work of oftentimes experienced union crews or experienced electricians or you know people who run staging companies where that's their entire life or sound technicians um you're judging their work based on the work of mm -hmm. the hospitality crew who are i'm sure every bit as good at their job but they're not the same people no it's not it's it's like saying you know it's like saying um i'm going to decide whether this plane is whether i'm going to get on this plane and if it's safe enough to fly in based on uh how good the cheeseburger is at the you know the, the burger stand yeah. at the bar at the at the airport yeah it doesn't make any sense no and it drives this is this dumb thing and granted i'm i am the one who's dragging this axe around behind me <laughs> but it's this dumb thing that has stuck around and now you still have all of these you know old guys like us going like well you know it's the thing about the van halen brown m, &M thing is it's really all about safety and making sure that no one yeah. got hurt and like doesn't seem so funny now does it and it's yeah. like you're an idiot dude you're an idiot yeah. you know what it the, the way I always, and I never heard that David Lee Roth explanation, but the way that was understood to me was basically when you walk into the dressing room and you, and you look for the M&Ms, that means they've gotten everything upstage or upstream of that request. So therefore, when you have 24 bottles of water and 48 bottles of beer and you have uh, two bags of chips and you have all this dip and things like that, the first thing you look at is the M&Ms to see if they've got everything. It's in that room. It's got nothing to do with what's been flowing. It's exactly what you're saying. It's all about, we don't need to count the 48 no, bottles wasn't. of beer. Well, that's what no, it always was when they walk into it the wasn't. dressing room. It's for the food. It was, just a, it was just a dumb thing that they put in a contract to be idiots. Oh, okay. That's it. That's all it was. It was, it's the same at, you know, I worked for a band. Um, I worked for a band. Uh, and the singer's name was also Dave, but, uh, I worked for a band. And it was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to put together the dressing room rider, like, you know, whatever, yeah. what do we want? And it, it's just one of those dumb things where you throw it out to an entire room. And, um, that one wants, uh, a six pack of Pepsi, but that one wants a six pack of Coke and that one wants a six, sometimes likes ginger ale. So put a six pack of ginger ale on there. And that one over there likes, um, likes light beer, except for sometimes he also likes IPA. So put a six pack of light beer mm. and a six pack of IPA. And sometimes that guy wants to eat roast beef, but sometimes he wants to eat turkey. So put a half pound of each on for every day. Mm -hmm. And you just, this thing got out of control and it was just this dumb, dumb thing. And the singer sort of was making fun of all of us um, and just wrote, you know, at the very end, he's like, okay, and now it's my turn. And at the, at the end, he just wrote, and one new red Corvette for Dave. Mm -hmm. And I, and I took it and I sort of looked at it and then laughed and I sent it off to the manager, uh, probably faxed it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And immediately I get a phone call and it's the manager like basically yelling at me going, why did you send this to me? I said, well, you said you wanted the rider for Germany. And uh, she goes, well, if you're not going to take it seriously, like, you know, don't even bother. And I said, what didn't we take seriously? And she goes, really? One new red Corvette for Dave? <laughs> and I just went, so, so cut it. So if that bothers you, just cross it out. Like, yeah. I don't care. It doesn't, whatever. Um, but, and she did. She, she crossed it out. Every other dumb request got into it. So we, so I was one of the people who put together one of these ridiculous Frankenstein riders of what, Hey, Simon, hmm. what is, what are, uh, what do you want to eat for lunch three weeks from now on a Tuesday? Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. You're going <laughs> to, when I get there, there's going to be some chocolate and there's going to be some chips and they're going to hand me, yeah. you know. They're going to hand me 10 euros and I'm going to go down the street to the, you know, whatever, the, the McDonald's or the kebab shop or the, <laughs> what was that place? Fibo? Remember? Was it Fibo? Was that the, the food in the walls? In, uh, oh, I don't remember. I, I think do, it was Fibo. I don't. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? I though? think Where I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Little glass doors and you put the coins in and, yeah. and uh, it was it's called an automat. It was a, a very fashionable, trendy way to eat in uh the united states in like the 1940s <laughs> um but yeah i think they had one i don't know if it's still around but they they had one in uh the netherlands mm. they had a chain of them it was great like late night drunk food yeah you yeah yeah, yeah. Like, they also used to put heineken's lower part you know you have the the the, the dispensaries where you right where you the chocolate bars and the chips are up top well the bottom row right. was beer so you like put it in because it was the for the least amount to fall and get fizzy um, right. Yeah. I have two funny, uh, well, two, inter well, not interested, but I have two touring uh, rider stories. One was I was touring with um, Sum 41 and we were mm -hmm. opening for Flogging Molly and um, the Mighty Mighty Bostones. Right. And we're playing, uh, what's that place in, uh, is it Porter Hall? Wherever it is in New York. The, I can't remember the Webster name. Webster Hall? Webster, it's something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we played there, and uh, the rider was like completely nothing. So Flogging Molly's like, we need, we didn't have beer. Can you go f buy us beer? We need Guinness. Here's $50. Go, please go find Guinness. So I walk up the road, and I go into like a variety store, and there's like three Guinness. So I buy those three, <laughs> and then I go to the other place down the block, and I'm walking all over Manhattan looking for Guinness for Guinness, and I'm right. not even tour managing them. They're like, we really need Guinness. We really help us out. So I'm like going all over looking for Guinness so uh, they could have Guinness on their rider. And um, the the other one, the the most smartest thing that I've ever heard a band ever ask for on a rider was socks. Can we have socks on the rider? Because. I mean, you're kind of, yeah, yeah, but I mean, for me to go on tour to have fresh socks every day was probably the most glorious thing ever, really. Um, yeah, that's one of those things that became fashionable <laughs> in like the, like the, yeah, the, the socks on the rider. Uh, I re I can see the face of a guy named Steve McClellan, who is a legend uh, he was the GM uh, and promoter rep of 
the first Avenue in mm. Minneapolis. And I could re I can picture him. We, after you, after you played a show there and you settled the show, he was one of those great guys who you just sit in his office and just BS with each other. You mm -hmm. know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Like we did your settlement and now it's just like, let's hang and talk. Two, yeah. Yeah. Let's just two cranky dudes cranking at each other. <laughs> yeah. And I remember one of his things, he went off on this stupid thing about socks or he went off on the stupidity of bands asking about socks. And he was like, you know, he's like, you know, <laughs> they, they ask for, you know, you know, the, the, the vegetarian food. So now we have to go to the vegetarian, you know, the health food store. <laughs> And I understand, you know, if you're a vegetarian, okay, fine, you know, it's fine. He's like, you know, and then they want cigarettes, and you know, that was the thing for a couple of years. You had to pay, you had to pay for their cigarettes for some reason, as if they could never find cigarettes in their everyday life. <laughs> and he's like, you know, but now all of a sudden we're 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 all crossing out cigarettes, and we're none of us are buying cigarettes anymore. And so now what they've come up with, just to just to really piss us off, is is socks. <laughs> I have to go buy socks. <laughs> For, you know, whoever. Smashing pumpkins. I have to make sure that the Smashing Pumpkins have socks. <laughs> um, and he said, this is great. He goes, so you're telling me these bands leave home <laughs> and they've got a truck full of guitars and drums and amps. And, you know, they've got, they've got you know, 30 boxes of T-shirts and and." you know, sweatshirts and hats that they're going to sell. And they've got their personal stuff and their computers and their this and their that. And they've got their bags with their clothes in them. And they've got their, 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 their jacket because it's going to get, you know, it's got, because they're touring in the winter and they've got, you know, their, their, their 10 rock band t-shirts that they're going to, you know, rotate on stage and they've got their their special stage pants and their off stage pants but no one had room to put socks in their bag <laughs> i just thought that was so great he was like this where 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 are they coming up with their underwear he's like you know they they don't need clean underwear every day but for some reason they need socks and the other thing was clean they, another thing that came out at the same time was clean white undershirts. Oh, and so so that was another that was another thing that would happen was you had to buy, you know, a certain amount of tube socks and a certain amount of clean white undershirts, size you know six medium and six large and mm. you know eight extra large or whatever it was. <laughs> um, and so yeah, that was. They, those two kind of happened at the same time, socks and, and clean white undershirts. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, where are all these clean white undershirts going? You know? <laughs> well, I, um, I do get the socks though, because you know, you're going to take them home and you're going to have a thousand pairs of socks to wear because you're going to have a thousand pairs of the cheapest, worst socks yeah. that you could buy at a supermarket. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, that's what you, you raise a good yeah. point. You raise yeah. good points. <laughs> they're the, they're the socks that you can buy in the aisle over from the yeah. soup. What uh, <laughs> they're not? <laughs> what pair of socks did Henry Rollins want? When Rollins want socks? Was, uh, did Rollins have I any weird things? No, I I, uh, uh, I toured with the Rollins band in 1992 in the summer. Yeah. Um, and no, I I think he was pretty. Um, he was living his uh, ascetic 
lifestyle. I think that's pronounced correctly. Um, but uh, I think he was pretty. Uh, I don't. I don't think there was anything crazy on the Rollins Band tour rider. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything. I don't know that I was ever part beyond the one, the one that I made, that was ridiculous, uh, with the uh, new new red Corvette for Dave. <laughs> um, I don't know that I was ever really part of a an over the top rider, or it was oh, it was all pretty much just you know, chips and maybe some veggies or meat if you have it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or, or just like what, you know, those things on, on European tours, European club tours, where it's like, it really varies wildly venue to venue. And depending on how, uh, how well paid you are as yeah, a, yeah. an employee, you either really don't notice or you completely appreciate those days when you can get an extra couple of like, you know, salami sandwiches in. Yeah. There was uh when we did a four square tour, we have two vegetarians in the band and we played this mm-hmm. weird show out in the country where we sort of met the promoter like in town and then they took us to where the venue was, which is like way not in town. And we got right. we ended up playing it looked like it was like a horse stable or something, wherever we were playing. And um because there was no food anywhere, the only food that they had made was hot dogs, you know, like vein like just just normal, regular-looking hot dogs. Right. And, and they were in a hot, big bucket of water. And uh, and they're like, the two vegetarians are like, oh, I can't eat this. I'm so weak. Oh, I'm so tired. And there's nowhere to get vegetarian food. I'm like a pig in shit, just like eating these things. Like, this is the best. <laughs> this is the best. I look at these things. This is authentic German food here. Look at us. You know what I mean? Sauerkraut and Wiener Schnitzel or whatever. And it was like, this is the best. I was like so happy because first of all, I have no real limitations of what I can eat. And that I feel somewhat guilty to an extent, but at the same time, at that moment, I was winning, like huge winning. <laughs> Wait, you played a show in Germany where they did not <laughs> supply vegetarian food? Oh, yeah. Is the room spinning? <laughs> yeah, that... No, I'm... No, no, I'm this, actually serious. This like, was nowhere, like, yeah. This is the middle of nowhere. All they had was like hot dogs. You got those? There you go. Eat that. That and sh- sauerkraut. Yeah, that's great. Like, no, I'm I'm actually being serious. Yeah. I'm not. I'm I'm shocked to find out that there was a show that did not have some type of vegetarian or vegan no, option. No, and it was no. It was just like yeah. It was like I said. It was in a horse stable. It was like half a horse stable. <laughs> And we're playing what there. year what uh, year was this 2004 wow yeah 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 no i'm i'm going back to like i remember nights in like 92 93 94 where it was like okay after soundcheck we're all eating dinner you know together we've supplied this communal meal and you just sort of get this plate of stuff and you'd mm-hmm. sort of look at it and go what okay like what do you all sort of poke around in it and you find out that it's like oh this is a you know that's a sort of a steamed potato thing uh, uh and that's like some mixed cauliflower and like yams or mm. or parsnips that's what i'm thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. Poly- cauliflower and parsnips and you like you realize you just go through the whole thing and you just go 
oh, th- this whole thing is vegetarian. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, whatever. Like I'll I'll eat my potato and I don't really care. You know, I don't want to choke down the cauliflower that much. I'll eat sort of part of that parsnip over there and a yeah. little bit of the lettuce. And okay, I guess yeah. that was dinner. And um, but yeah, I'm, I'm shocked. Now, Simon, you have inadvertently Mm-mm. you have triggered uh the next jim norton story oh very good which is the time that fred schneider from the b-52s made me a hot dog Ooh, this is one of my favorite stories currently <laughs> um and this story actually goes back to the first band that i was in which is a band that's uh, it was a local band in New Jersey, um, not of any real uh, notoriety outside of our area, which I think I said before. A band, the band was called the Shock Mommies, um, and we had our fans. I'm not going to lie, we had our fans, but they were local fans, and and yeah, mm-hmm. so. You are aware of who Fred Schneider from oh, yeah, the B-52s yeah, yeah. is. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. So We make fun of him all the time. Like the part where right. they, for Rome when they cut his voice out because it was Rome, Rome, baby. I'm like, nah, Fred, we got this. We don't need you we to got, sing Rome. No, but I got my parts. You know? No, no, we're right. good. Thanks for the thanks anyways. <laughs> um, well, Fred Schneider, uh, while the B-52s are from Athens, Georgia, Fred Schneider himself is from a town called Oceanport, New Jersey, which they have a song called Song for a Future Generation. He said, I'm Fred. I'm from Oceanport, NJ. (laughs) Um, Oceanport, New Jersey is uh, about... Fred Schneider's childhood home is probably about eight minutes from where I sit right now. Um, Do they all talk like Fred? Please say that. (laughs) Is a certain town language. Yes. <laughs> no, it's not a certain town. But Fred Schneider is is I think the oldest <laughs> of a lot of Schneider children. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was in this band, the Shock Mommies, and the guitar player was friends with Fred's younger brother, Chris Schneider. And Chris Schneider sounded a little bit like Fred. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. In fact, I came to find out one fateful day that a lot of the Schneider siblings had a similar timber to their voice. Mm-hmm. So Chris Schneider and I uh, had mutual friends in this band, and I, I'm going to take equal standing with Chris in this story. And I'm going to say that Chris Schneider and I had a bit of a rivalry, a a friendship rivalry going where we both might not have been the easiest people to get along with. (laughs) And consequently, we both sort of felt the same way about each other, which was, I don't know why you're friends with that guy because he's a jerk. <laughs> and, and on the other side of our mutual friends was Chris Schneider saying, I don't know why you're friends with Jim Norton because he's a jerk. <laughs> um, so uh, 
but Fred, you know, Chris was friends with the group and it was sort of this tense thing between him and I at times where it's like, you know, we have to be friends, but we don't really want to be friends. Um, and this is going back again, 30, 31 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, one day in the summer of 1988, uh, Chris Schneider invites the entire band, the four of us, to the Schneider family cookout. They are going to have this cookout at his family's house. They have it every year. You guys should come. It's going to be great. And I do not want to go. I can see that it's like, this is a, this is just, I should stay away. Um, but I can't. Because just it's one of those dumb things where it's like, you know, you shouldn't do it, but by not doing it, it might make it worse than if you just did it. So, you know, the rest of the band is like, oh, just go, just go, just go, just go. You know, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be an asshole if you don't go. So you might as well just go. Fine. I'll go. And I say, so when is everyone else going? This one says, you know, I get off work at six o'clock. So I'll be there at 615. And this one says, I'm going to. You know, I've got to do something with my family. I'm going to get there at about six o'clock. And that one says, I'm going to get there at about, you know, 530, quarter to six, whatever. So I just said, okay, cool. I'll go at 630. The three of you will already be there. (laughs) And we will be, you know, I'll have coverage at least, you know. So I'm not just alone with Chris, you know, where something bad can happen. So 6.30, I pull up outside his family's house and I walk around the side and he's got this, they have this, this big backyard and I look and I realize I know exactly what's going on. <laughs> it's 6.30. The cookout started at like noon or one. Right. It's over. Oh shit. His big family, he has a, their big family. I'm going to say there are eight or nine kids or something like that. Seven, eight, nine Schneider kids. And they've broken up into little groups in other air, like scattered throughout this, this backyard. Um, and I just look and I, I recognize like, oh, oh, this is like, I don't see my friends. I should get out of here. And I'm just going to turn away and I hear, hey. It's my friend, Jim. Hey, Jim. And I go over there and, hey, Chris, what's going on? And just sort of like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And, you know, oh, Jim, I want you to meet my sister, Susan. Hey, Jim, how are you? Nice to meet you. This is my my brother, Bobby. You know, hey, Jim, how's it going? they all just have like different shades of Fred Schneider voice. And there's also a, a, if I remember correctly, a facial resemblance yeah, among yeah, them. Yeah. It's a very <laughs> distinct family. And, um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and, you know, introducing over here and introducing over there and okay, great, 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 great. And, and Chris says, did you eat? And I said, no, because I'm a fat 19 year old who was promised free food. And he goes, Oh, Fred's making everybody hot dogs. (laughs) Now you have to understand this is 1988. Fred Schneider 
of the B-52s has, he's gone past the quirky new wave icon thing of like Rock Lobster, the first two records, whatever. Yeah. 1986, I think, they came out with the album Cosmic Thing with yeah. Love Shack and yeah. Rome. Yeah. This dude is a full-blown rock star. Totally, yeah. Like, he is a real deal MTV, you know, yeah. gonna play to 50,000 people rock star. Fred's making everybody hot dogs. And he says, <laughs> hey, where's Fred? And someone says, Fred's down the street at the park with the with the grandkids. So Fred Schneider of the B-52s is at home in Oceanport, New Jersey, where he is being Uncle Fred. Okay? He is not out on some stage. Like, he was the cook. He was the cook three or four hours ago. Yeah, yeah, he's done. But but it's like, I just want to, like, establish that even as a 19-year-old, I recognize, like, hey, dude, Fred's being Uncle Fred. And I think it's pretty safe to say to, you know, anybody who has even a cursory knowledge of Fred Schneider, the person, it is unlikely that Fred Schneider is necessarily ever going to be a father. If you get my drift, (laughs) (laughs) there may not be a, you know, he could adopt Fred Jr. But yeah, but there's not going to be another little Fred running around. Not like, not that I could see at that time. It was Mm -hmm. the eighties. It was a, it was a, I don't want to say a simpler time. It was a, a less accepting time. Yeah. Uh, but he's being Uncle Fred, and I sort of stand there and say, "Go, oh, Fred's down in the park," and he goes, "Oh!" And then someone says, "I'll go get him." Oh no! <laughs> so at this point, one of Fred Schneider's brothers or sisters goes a couple of blocks down the road, fetches Fred Schneider, oh. international rock star and new wave icon. <laughs> takes him away from being Uncle Fred, who's hanging down at the swings, pushing his niece or nephew, having, I'm sure, probably a pretty good time. (laughs) And says, Fred, it's very important that you come back to the house now to make a hot hot dog for a chubby (laughs) 19-year-old. And about five minutes later... You know, we're standing there and sort of have uncomfortable discussion about how the rest of our friends haven't come yet. And about five minutes later, an obviously nonplussed Fred Schneider, international new wave icon and rock star, comes into the backyard just not happy. (laughs) Not happy at all. And he's looking right at me as he's walking towards me. And this, like... I saw the I saw the B-52s on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. I owned their records. Like yeah. I was to some degree a B-52s fan. Yeah. But even I knew this was not the time <laughs> to be, you know, yeah. ebullient with Fred Schneider. This yeah. was the time to shut up, stand still, keep your mouth shut, <laughs> and just let this whole stupid thing play out like it's supposed to. And so Fred walks up 
And to my memory, he picks up an apron and puts an apron on <laughs> that says like, kiss the cook or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm Fred Schneider. Who wants a hot dog? Right. <laughs> and he's looking at me and he opens up like without, he's not even looking at the, the little Tupperware container that holds the hot dogs. He opens up some sort of a cooler, takes out the, the thing, opens this thing up while he's looking at me, takes the tongs, takes out a hot dog, <laughs> lifts up the lid of the in-ground ga in gas grill and puts the hot dog on it, closes the lid, and we stand there for a very uncomfortable minute and a half or two <laughs> minutes. At which point he reaches into the cooler and he takes out a roll. And he lifts up the lid on the hot on the gas grill, which at this point I realize not a lot of heat coming off this gas grill. <laughs> I look and there's very little visual proof that this thing has been even started to yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah very 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 unconvincing <laughs> portrayal of a hot dog, <laughs> and he takes it and he puts it on the roll and he hands it to me. And I take a bite, and immediately I realize there is something amiss. It's nice. And I, I, I bite into it, and it's, it's lukewarm-ish almost. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is no snap. There is no resistance. There is no nothing. I have just bitten into a piece of lukewarm salty clay on a hot dog roll <laughs> and it occurs to me in that moment in 19 the summer of 1988 that i have in my mouth a third of a very early technology not perfected vegetarian hot dog oh okay yeah 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 and the look that goes across my face that says, oh, no. And Fred Schneider reads the look and does one of the greatest things ever. He just automatically, he becomes animated. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. Would you feel better if someone died for your meal? Oh. Here. Maybe this will make you feel better. Ow, stop. You're killing me. Oh, oh no. no. Stop. That's my baby. <laughs> and 19 year old chubby middle upper middle class spoiled never had a problem in his life jim norton has to stand there and fucking take it eat it every bit of it yeah. every and just i've got to eat the tofu dog i gotta take his abuse and i just because he didn't ask for it and i didn't ask for it <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's the story of the time fred schneider made me a hot dog that's beautiful i love that <laughs> i I would really love someday to run into him and say, God, and hot, tell, can I have a hot dog? And, no, just tell him that story and just go, listen, I got to tell you about one of the greatest days of my life <laughs> yeah, yeah. because I love that, that, it, that I love telling that story. <laughs> I love the, and, and I, that is something where being older now I appreciate where he was coming from yeah. now i get the whole like yeah like i knew i knew that it was not 
necessary in the moment for Fred to make the hot dog. Even in the moment, I was like, why why are we sending someone to go get Fred to come back here to make a hot dog when there are like six or seven of us, and I'm one of them, Mm -hmm. who could just put a hot dog on a grill and be done with it. Um, But no, it was uh, Fred. Fred. Had to be Fred. Had to be Fred. Fred, I, who just toured, toured, you know, somewhere. 37 countries in, in 36 months. Fred, you know, they probably, Fred, who hasn't, they probably like bump purpose. Like Fred, you're a little too high for your britches. We're going to have to cut yeah, you down. Yeah. You have to make food for people. Like if you're going to come visit. Yeah. You really? Yeah. You might sell a million records other and other places, but yeah. you only sold one record in this house, pal. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you important <laughs> with your words and your Rome, right. Rome, baby? Now, that's my favorite joke ever is that because if you listen to Rome, obviously he's not on it. They'd be like, right. like, there is somewhere buried in a track somewhere like, I got a part and it goes like this. <laughs> Rome, Rome, baby. You know, I've got a Rome. And they're like, no, no, man. Thanks. Thanks. Like, you know, the talk back, Mike. Like, yeah. Yeah, Fred, uh, I don't think it's going to work out. Um, let's let the girls sing this one, okay? <laughs> there are... Listen, I, you know, it's not just because the man made me a hot dog, but there there are previous examples of B-52 songs that Fred Schneider does not appear on vocally. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. There are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, granted, one of them was called 52 Girls, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, it's weird. I fell into a little YouTube trap of B-52s because um, I was like, I wonder what the B-52s are doing. Are they still touring? Are they still playing? Like, do they still exist? And they still play. Like, they still do shows. Sure, and sure. And Kate is, um, is like 65 years old. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> she's 65 years old. And you like, picture of her, she's like, she still looks good. I mean, 65, like, it's it's a true testament of, like, I guess some good lotions. I, I don't know, but she does not well, look sixty five. It's it's well. I mean, maybe some that that might be that might be that might be. I I don't know, and I won't speak to yeah. her looks or anyone else's looks. But you know, first of all, makeup does exist. Yeah, lighting does exist. Photography and Photoshop do exist. Um, but yes, also surgery exists and working out and taking care of yourself and all of those things also exist but it's such a Um, it's great to see that i mean like they're still playing they're still doing stuff they're still i mean it's it's you know there's a that's a funny thing that's like think about this like you know what are you supposed to do like on one hand you know i mean whatever i'm i'm 50 how old are you i'm 49 this year i'm 48 okay yeah so like on one hand, you look at it and you go, okay, you know, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm sitting right now in a, in a room in my basement where I have a bass guitar over there and I have a, a, a guitar over there and I'm probably never going to hmm. play. I'm probably never going to start a band again. Probably. I'm not saying never, but um, I don't really foresee it happening. but you know, the bands that already existed and are just getting older and getting older, like why shouldn't the B-52s play? The B-52s, you know, Love Shack is still played at every single wedding. Yeah. You're not legally married until they actually play Love Shack. (laughs) Yeah, you raise a good point. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like they have 
this body of work that, you know, that stands up and why shouldn't they, why, you know, they can, they can do the eighties tours. They can do casinos. They can do their own theater shows or whatever it is. Mm. Like there is this weird thing where now we are the old people. Um, and it, before us, it was the classic rock bands. It was, you know, um, so yeah, it, it is this funny thing where you, where a youth movement or a youth culture, you get to a point and you just go, eh, it doesn't really have to be youth. And like it, mm. it's former youth. Yeah, I saw, uh, who did I see? I saw the Go-Go's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. On their farewell tour. And uh, no, I'm sorry. I did not see the Go-Go's. I wanted to see the Go-Go's. Huh. Uh, I saw the Bengals. <laughs> No, I did see the Go Go's. Mm. I did see the Go Go's, but but honestly, it was the place was so full. There was a place that like a festival style thing. There were about five thousand people, and um, that was one of the few shows that I've ever been at where I didn't feel like it was right for me to be up front. Mm-hmm. Like there were so many. Um, there were so many women there having a great time, like women who are our, our age or maybe even a couple of years older mm-hmm. where it was like, you know what, dude, just, just don't just sit, kind of sit this one out. So mm-hmm. I was so far back that I don't even really remember the show. Um, and also it was, uh, it was obnoxiously quiet. The actual <laughs> sound, the sound, mm-hmm of the show was obnoxiously quiet to where like half the time, because I was towards the back, you couldn't hear what was going on because of people talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they just, um, like, why shouldn't they play? They had 5,000 people like really enjoying them. So it's like, I don't, I don't have a, I, I, I used to have a thing about like, Oh, you're playing too. Like it's time to get out of the game sort of thing. I lost that. I mm-hmm. definitely, and, and the, actually what's interesting is I didn't lose that notion of you should stop playing by watching bands that we, you and I grew up with. It wasn't seeing, you know, no effects or, you know, any of those bands playing where you just go, Oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. Holy smokes. If when he doesn't dye his hair is it's all, it's all gray. Like, yeah. It was the bands or the performers that turned me on to the idea of like, hey, you can play for as long as you want. Mm-hmm. Were at a an auditorium that I worked for for ten summer seasons. That it was. It's an auditorium in a that's owned by a church, and they would do for years and years. They did like oldies concerts. And things like that. Oldies concerts and the once a year, once a summer, they would do a contemporary Christian thing. But seeing people like Frank Sinatra Jr. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I'm I'm not a big Sinatra guy. Like, I, I'm, I'm just not. Um, and certainly, you know, not a big Frank Sinatra Jr. guy. <laughs> but I got it. You know, he's dead. He's died since. But. Frank Sinatra Jr., the show that I worked 
of his in like 2012 or something like that. He did. He worked harder all day than possibly any other uh, any other performer I've ever seen. Frank, I found out only in the last year or so. Frank Sinatra Jr. was his father's, I think, band leader or arranger. Yeah, I think I yeah I heard about that. So. For the, you know, the, however many years towards the end of his dad's life, he was the guy who ran the band through the paces because those bands, mm-hmm. like those those singers don't tour. No, they're just pickups own. for every venue yeah. and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like you, you go to the local musicians union and you say, I need this many trombones and this many violins and this many trumpets and this many cellos or whatever. Um, so for this Frank Sinatra Jr. show, he had, I want to say it was like a 35-piece, might have been a 50-piece band, orchestra. Mm-hmm. And we sh- we get there at, I want to say, maybe 10 or 11 in the morning. And we set everything up, and the musicians are going to show up at noon. Uh, and we set up downstage, at the front of the stage, towards the edge where the audience would be. We set up a six-foot folding table and two chairs. And Frank Sinatra Jr. rolls up and sits down in this chair, uh, sits down in one of the chairs, um, maybe like 15 minutes before the band call. And they all come in. They all file in. And he's like sitting there just working on his charts. and uh, And then at some point where, you know, 10 minutes after – the call or something like that. He sort of stands up. It was hi, you know, I'm, I'm Frank, you know, or Frank Jr. or whatever he calls himself. I don't know. And uh, you know, blah 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 blah. We're going to do this, 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 and this, and we're going to run through these transitions and these paces. And dude ran these guys through transitions for like six hours. Really? Wow. He did a full day's work. Then went to dinner, <laughs> came back and did the show. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like going into it, I kind of thought like Frank Sinatra Jr. Like kind of living off his dad's, you know, everything. Yeah. Um, You know, I get the whole like living in your dad's shadow, but living off your dad's shadow after he died. But after that day, I was like, that dude earned every penny he made that day totally he he was the guy literally penciling in charts going up running running the you know the second trumpet through stuff and going no accent this note in the 56th measure like really detailed detailed stuff he knew exactly what he wanted how to get it and was willing to to just run it and run it and run it until they got it right and also as you you might be aware to pay for it yeah literally you know because a lot of those union guys they'll show up you know they show up at doors yeah and you know because it's how little can we pay them no he wanted the band there all day and he'll pay you and you know he wanted the best that they could offer and he was willing to pay as much as it took and that was the deal so it's like it that i he there were a few shows like that where i just went you know these guys are real pros. Like these are real 
Yeah. This isn't just about being a cool guy with a guitar jumping around. Like I don't listen. I still don't listen to Frank Sinatra or Frank Sinatra Jr. But you know, when you see an 80 something year old Engelbert Humperdinck, you know, deliver like full on deliver to a room of 4,000 people. You just go, all right, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that, that kind of puts, you know, some of these, some of these, you know, bozos with lip rings right in their place, you know? Oh, I agree. Totally. You know, and I think that's what you said. I think you hit it on the head. It's like, as you get older, you sort of appreciate what people put into what they do. I mean, sometimes you don't need to sit in the van for eight hours to go load into a show to go leave and go drive all night to get to the next venue. That to me isn't, that has the same validity, you know what I mean? Then right, what right. you see um, people that aren't in, I don't like using the word, but that wheelhouse sort of like where, where they're not, you're not in their sort of world, but you sort of can appreciate based on your own merit, like what it takes to, you know, to pull together a show. You know, we did Aretha Franklin a couple of years, like years ago, tw- almost 15 years ago. And she counted the money. Like she was like, you better sit down. It was all cash. So right. she would count the money in front of the, the promoter and say, oh, okay, we're good. We can play now. You know, it's like, yeah, that's ballsy, man. <laughs> the, oh, this is not my story. Yeah. This is a, this is a story that, uh, this is a, a secondhand story from a club where I worked when I was a teenager, but Chuck Berry. Hmm. Chuck Berry playing the Bucks County Fair in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Bucks County is north of Philadelphia, uh, sort of this semi-rural, but right on the edge of the city kind of thing. Um, Chuck, the, these guys were three guys, a drummer, a bass player, and a piano player were hired as the pickup band, the just the band that was going to play that day with, with uh, Chuck Berry um, at the Bucks County Fair. And they're all super excited. They're like young guys in their mid-20s. And they're going to, you know, it's, you know, they're going to play with Chuck Berry. And this is really cool. Um, and they're supposed to play at, you know, the show starts at 7.30 at the Bucks County Fair. And so they're... They're there at three o'clock and they're standing around and they're talking and this is going to be great. We're going to be with Chuck Berry and three o'clock turns into four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock. And there's still no Chuck Berry and they're, Oh, whatever. Okay. And you know, I guess, you know, it's Chuck Berry. We can do a quick sound check and no big deal and whatever. And six turns into six thirty, turns into seven o'clock. Still no Chuck Berry. And about seven fifteen. A car, a if I again, depending on or, or relying on my memory, a brown mid seventies Ford LTD <laughs> makes its way through the crowd <laughs> of the Bucks County Fair, slowly weaving its way, and uh, it it's being led by you know somebody whatever we'll for the sake of the story we'll say it's someone on a horse (laughs) but uh it's being escorted through the crowd and it parks behind the stage and out pops chuck berry 
at, you know, 15 minutes to showtime. And uh, so he, he hops out and the three band guys sort of walk, walk up to him and they go, Hey Chuck, you know, you know, whatever. I'm Steve, I'm Fred, I'm this one and that, whatever. And uh, he goes, yeah, that that's great. Uh, where's the office where they pay me? <laughs> and he has in one hand, his guitar case. And in the other hand, he has a briefcase. And uh, they go, oh, it's that trailer over there. And so he walks off at 717. Hmm. And he goes and comes back. And it's 727. And he opens the trunk of his Ford LTD and he puts the briefcase in. And he pulls out a Fender Champ amp, <laughs> and uh, he hands it to one of the sound guys. Like, hey, plug this in over there, or whatever. And uh, closes the door, and he goes up on stage with the guitar case, opens it up, or, or puts the guitar case on the stage next to him, opens it up, takes the guitar out with a strap already on it, cord all you know, cord is right there. He plugs into the amp leaves the guitar case on the stage next to him open and it's 7:30 and it's showtime and the three guys get up on stage and they're sort of looking at it go fred uh, or uh, chuck you want to uh what do you want to you want to tune up <laughs> he goes fellas they tuned it at the factory let's go <laughs> and just busts into whatever you know johnny be good or, yeah, yeah. or whatever his opening number is roll over beethoven never a word about what keys anything is in it's just you but you follow him you find the key and you roll yeah that's it <laughs> and uh but yeah he 100 got paid shows over guitar goes back in the case he grabs the amp in one hand the guitar case in the other with the cable still half plugged in walks over to the trunk of the car puts it in drives away that's it that's it done wow but yes you will be paid you will count your own money <laughs> i uh i remember i was on tour with voivod and we were playing a metal festival in milwaukee and um the promoter and we we're getting paid like pretty good money like over a certain amount of money that would make you think if i didn't get paid i'm in a lot of trouble and i'm looking for the promoter nowhere to be found played the show i take the band back to wherever we're staying i come back i keep looking i keep looking and I, I'm like every time i'm going to one venue you know the place that is whatever the venue's called eagle uh, eagles hall yes exactly yeah so you go to the downstairs venue and you go where's guy and he's always oh, upstairs you go upstairs oh he's downstairs wait wait i got i gotta ask you yeah. do you remember the person's name i don't i don't was i want it was it jack Koshik? That name is very familiar, but I, let's not call him that. Just to <laughs> to be on the safe side, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But, <laughs> so so, anyways, I'm going. Where the where the hell is this guy? I got to get paid, and and I'm you know whatever. It's one of the early tour managing gigs in '96 or something right. where I'm actually tour managing a band that have some sort of notoriety. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's I'm, Jack Caution. Okay, so. so <laughs> So anyways, I'm going, okay, so I got to get this money. And I finally find him. He goes, come out with me. 
I'm like, where? I go out to the parking lot. And I'm like, oh, fuck, he's going to he's gonna whack me or he's going to beat the shit out of me or he's going to do something. We get to the back of his car. He pops the trunk. And I'm like, that's where the baseball bat comes out. This is where it, but he, then he gets it. And he opens up like a, a you know, like a, a travel, like a doctor's bag. And yeah. he pulls the money out and throws me the money, uh, you know, in however increments it was. I think there were thousand dollar stacks of twenty. Right. And he's just like throwing it at me. How much you want? How much you want? I'm like, holy shit. Okay, thank you. And I didn't ask for a receipt. I just sort of took the money and I took off. And I was like, very frightening because as a, I think at that time, you know, I'm like twenty five years old. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Right. I got nothing. I got I got no like anger. I was all I knew that he knew I was looking for him all night and he knew that he was like basically he would eventually have to pay. Right. But he took every possible step to to elude me, thinking I'm not going to maybe I'll just maybe he'll just go away. Maybe he'll you know what I mean? Like maybe he doesn't need the money, you know. And uh that was a very frightening thing because it was in that parking lot in the front and it was dark and, you know, I mean, I'm a kid, you know, I don't know what's going on. But um, the other, uh, the other, uh, I have a few other pay, getting paid show, stories. But I just, I, I, I always think like back to those times ago. Like, yeah, you know, I wonder how close to that guy saying, "Yeah, come around here," and then just you know, knifing you or something. You know what I mean? Like, when does your imagination can only take hold? Like, I'm, like, there's stories of bands that I know that have had been robbed. You know what I mean? Like on tour and stuff. And you know, I, I kind of got off lucky. I think. Um. I, the only place that I heard stories about was a place in Pittsburgh. Uh, and I don't remember, I think it was all had a gun pulled on them. It was a place called the electric banana. Mm-hmm. Um, and that place was super sketchy. Um, I, I went there on the first u.s tour that i ever worked for another band and uh it was it was a pretty pretty sketchy (laughs) sketchy place but uh besides that i mean i had a couple of things i worked for rancid Mm -hmm. and also coincidentally i'm gonna say uh in pittsburgh we had a we had a show where uh the promoters it was this weird time for them where it was like they were they were still had sort of a crusty uh following but they were getting too big for it um literally i they had they had an album in 95 95 called outcome the wolves Mm -hmm. i was there when the wolves came out (laughs) that was my time i was there when the wolves came out um (laughs) Yeah, if you have three hours sometime, I'll tell you the, about the story about the time I snubbed Madonna. Oh, I've um, heard that story, but you, you, yeah, yeah, I love that story. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, uh, so yeah, there was a show, but that wasn't people, there wasn't a violence aspect. It was really just this dumb, like, crusty punk or like shitty street punk thing of like, we're going to, we're 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 going to let our friends let people in the side door for five dollars instead of charging seven at the door. Mm. 
and you know it's just this whole dumb thing um but there was never really any danger on that same on that same tour though i did get uh pretty freaked out columbus day weekend 1994 i ended up on tour on that rancid tour i ended up with something like forty thousand dollars in cash mm-hmm. um and it was i guess yeah it would have been over the course of a couple of days really big shows really big merch poll really big nights for merch and long drives so i couldn't get to a bank to unload this cash and uh and then finally it was just like well we're going to be back at back in california we'll just wait until then um and by the time i counted the money uh it was like forty thousand dollars that i was putting in uh and i was counting the cash in the band's van outside of Lars Fredrickson's mom's apartment uh, in a, in the street. And I realized that there were two dudes who were watching me mm. and I very quick, like very nonchalantly sort of like went poking around in the front and then, you know, like jumped into the front seat and reversed the hell out of there before anything really stupid happened. But uh, that was, I think the that was the only time I really feared for like oh this is going to be a problem, um, but yeah no I I never had I don't really re- ever recall having the experience of you know we're going to be fighting over money or we're going to be uh, you know I'm going to get hit with a bat but you know it's funny while you were while you were telling the story. Um, I did look it up and yes, I got that person's name, right. And <laughs> yes, that dude, he was one of the, the Milwaukee metal fest guy was one of the, uh, he, he was this, another kind of legend of a, that, that will sort of not, you, we're not going to see that type again. Yeah. The, the promoter who, yeah, there's a certain lawlessness, a certain, you know, we deal all in cash and no one knows what we do. And, you know, just according to, they know nothing. Like as, as far as the IRS knows, that guy works at a record store two days a week, 30 grand a year, maybe tops 30, 30, try 30, try 13, 13 grand a year, you know, just like reporting no income. Um, yeah, that guy, that guy was, uh, there were stories i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say legend because that sounds complimentary Mm. there were stories about the promoter of of uh milwaukee metal fest (laughs) um and they're easily found i I just i just found them while you were talking that's hilarious yeah that was uh that was i mean that that whole i was that voivod tour is funny because I thought oh i have all this cash on me i need to start what i would do is buy bankers drafts so sure. at least they were insured. So if we got robbed, we had insurance so we could get our money back. You know, you know, that was my thought behind it. But every day I would cash, I would count the cash from the tour and I'd they'd be like out that amount that I bought in banker's drafts because it wasn't in the big pile of money. And right. every night for like three days in a row, I would, my heart would stop. Like, um, <laughs> right. 
You I'm, thought you lost I'm like five grand. <laughs> yeah. right. I am short so much money right now, but I'm right. like, Oh no, no, no. And then, so you, you know, that adrenaline when you almost get in a car crash, yeah, yeah. it was that yeah, feeling yeah. like, Oh my God, I'm going to get killed. And, uh, and eventually, yeah. So it took like three days for me to realize like, Oh, that money, don't worry about that. So I was counting all that money. I did work for another band that ha- got paid in cash too. And I, I had it in this North by Northeast bag and it filled the bag like with cash. And I was mm-hmm. so frightened that same thing, like to, to where am I going to put this? Like, do I put it right. under the seat in the van? No, unless the van gets stolen. Like it was like, it was very frightening. And, and like there's green day stories where in Dookie days, they didn't realize they could hire like a, a, a company to come get the cash. So they would run out the back door of the venue with like a hoodie box full of cash like to the right. bus, you know what I mean? Like it's like we didn't right. realize we could hire a company to come get all our money and count it for us and everything. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a yeah. I mean, God, this is a long episode. We've been <laughs> shooting this shit for a long time. We're getting yeah. caught up, getting caught up. I I gotta let you go, but I um okay. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Jim. Uh, I uh, I think we can do this more often. I uh I think uh, just getting stories from you. I uh, I do a yearly like pickup with 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 people because they have so many interesting things to say. So let's let's put it on the back burner to to parts pick parts two through parts two through seventeen. Yeah yeah yeah. It's an ongoing <laughs> it's an ongoing storytelling part of the show, you know. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you. Uh, I still you know, it's the same basement from five years ago than when we uh. We were we were trying we were making this making the start of this and uh, yeah. yeah um let's uh let's let's keep it going absolutely good night good morning good afternoon whatever it is to you <laughs> listener I don't know why you listened this long thank you very much sir and that was Mister Gentleman Jim Norton good conversation that was a long one that was a long one longer than normal and uh we had a lot to say i guess so we we talked a lot um great having you on the show jim thank you so much for doing that um hey let's uh let's thank everybody for shopping on amazon let's uh you can help the show out too by going to appleock.ca slash amazon or appleock.ca slash us amazon thanks to everybody for helping me out on patreon to by going to patreon.com slash apologue all right it was a bit of a bummer week we went to a funeral for ivan who who last week was a, a memorial episode for a dear old friend friend of the families thank you whoever listened to that and it was it was a joy to meet all the family members who took comfort in hearing ivan's voice which there's not a lot of recorded voice for Ivan Irwin. It was an honor and a pleasure to speak with a dear old friend of the families and just a good, gentle soul. Okay, everybody, next week, who's on? I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet, but we are going to be coming back every week for you to enjoy, to love, to cry, to laugh. And, uh, anyways, to get rid of all that. Dark winter depression. Have a good week. See ya.
Dark Winter Depression. <laughs>